It was the best in medical care. It was the worst in medical care. You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? The gunfire had barely died away in Dealey Plaza when a series of odd and often unexplained events began in Dallas. And they've continued up to this day, leaving room for doubt that there was a lone assassin and sweetening the theory for a conspiracy. One of these unexplained events happened during the shooting and immediately after. There was an eight-minute disruption of the Dallas Police radio channel during the shooting, meaning no one was able to communicate with each other during that time and then with no orders to stop them, the police blocking the nearby intersections released traffic, which began pouring through the crime scene. You can imagine the problem this would cause by adding to the already chaotic event. Once communication commenced, the police took action, but all were receiving conflicting information. Witnesses on the west end of Dealey Plaza pinpointed the picket fence on the grassy knoll as the source of the shots, while many other people on the east end said shots came from the vicinity of the Texas School Book Depository. Captain Will Fritz, who headed the Dallas Police investigation, told the Warren Commission he began making detailed notes after hearing of the assassination at the trademark. Fritz said he arrived at the Texas School Book Depository at exactly 12.58 p.m. The commission asked if the depository exits were guarded at that time. Fritz replied, I am not sure. But I don't, there had been some question about that. But the reason I don't think that, this may differ with someone else, but I'm going to tell you what I know. After I arrived, one of the officers asked me if I would like to have the building sealed, and I told him I would. It seems that there was no effective containment of the crime scene or of the depository for at least 10 minutes, and perhaps as much as 28 minutes after the shooting. The confusion in Dealey Plaza created ample opportunity for conspirators to escape and for vital evidence to be eliminated. Sometime later that day, another mystery took place. The Stemmons Freeway sign on Elm Street, which according to some bystanders was struck by a bullet, disappeared. The sign in question is the one shown in the Zapruder film that blocks Kennedy from sight moments before the fatal blow. And while evidence was disappearing from Elm Street, Men were seen fleeing the rear of the Texas School Book Depository. Richard Carr, a steelworker who saw a heavyset man on the sixth floor of the depository minutes before the shooting, saw two men run either from inside or from behind the Texas School Book Depository minutes after the assassination. Years later, attorney Jim Garrison would prosecute the dubious figure Clay Shaw as a co-conspirator in JFK's assassination. Carr would testify in that trial and after testifying, he was attacked by two men in Atlanta. Although stabbed in the back and left arm, Carr managed to fatally shoot one of his assailants. After turning himself in, Carr was not indicted by an Atlanta grand jury. It has been suggested that this was connected to the trial. Another notable incident was recounted by Dallas policeman Joe M. Smith. He had run into the parking lot atop the grassy knoll after a woman had told him, they're shooting the president from the bushes. He began searching through the parked cars when he encountered a man who displayed Secret Service identification. Smith told author Anthony Summers, The man, this character, produces credentials from his hip pocket, 
which showed him to be Secret Service. I have seen those credentials before and they satisfied me. So, I immediately accepted that and let him go and continued our search around the cars. That doesn't sound like a crazy story, right? But here's the thing. The Secret Service maintain that none of their agents on duty that day were anywhere near Dealey Plaza, either before or just after the assassination. All were either riding in the motorcade or at the trademark. And yet, this wouldn't be the only time someone claims to have run into one of their agents. Before the presidential motorcade made its way into Dealey Plaza, Gordon Arnold said he was walking behind the wooden picket fence on top of the grassy knoll when he was approached by a man who told him he was with Secret Service and that Arnold could not stay behind the fence. Moments later, Arnold said shots came from behind the fence. Dallas Police Sergeant D.V. Harkness also encountered Secret Service men where none were supposed to be. He told the Warren Commission that he ran to the rear of the depository moments after the shooting and was confronted by some Secret Service agents. Harkness told a commission lawyer, didn't get them identified, they told me they were Secret Service. In later years, he told the Dallas Morning News that the men were dressed in suits and were all armed. He told the newspaper, I assume they were with the presidential party. In 1978, Agent Sorrells, now retired, was asked by a Dallas newsman to comment on the stories of bogus Secret Service agents in Dealey Plaza. Sorrells replied, I'm not answering any questions about this thing. I gave all my testimony in Washington. I don't put out anything else. As far as I'm concerned, that's a closed incident. Personally, I find this comment incredibly defensive. Either it's because he sincerely doesn't want the Secret Service attached to the assassination plot, or it's an emotional nefarious projection, because the accusation hits a little close to home, especially when we discover that. The House Select Committee on Assassinations briefly looked into the matter of men with Secret Service identification and established that, except for Dallas agent in charge, Sorrells, who helped police search the Texas School Book Depository, no Secret Service agent was in the vicinity of the stockade fence or inside the book depository on the day of the assassination. If the witnesses are credible, and we are to believe the official stance that no agents were anywhere but in the motorcade and at the trademark, then who were these mysterious men, and how did they get Secret Service credentials? We will examine this again in a later episode. Another intriguing account that caused considerable problems for the official narrative comes from Police Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig. Craig said just after the motorcade turned on Elm Street, he heard a shot and began running toward Dealey Plaza. He ran down the grassy incline between Main and Elm Street and saw a Dallas police officer run up the grassy knoll and then go behind the picket fence near the railroad yards. Craig followed, noting, complete confusion and hysteria behind the fence. He began to question people when he noticed a woman in her early 30s attempting to drive out of the parking lot. Craig recalled, I stopped her, identified myself, and placed her under arrest. This parking lot was leased by Dallas Deputy Sheriff B.D. Gossett. He, in turn, rented parking space by the month to the deputies who worked in the courthouse, except for official vehicles. I rented one of these spaces. I paid Gossett $3 a month and was given a key to the lot. An interesting point is that the only people having access to it were deputies with keys. How did this woman gain access? And what is more important, who was she and why did she have to leave? I turned her over to Deputy Sheriff C.L. Lewis and he told me that he would take her to Sheriff Decker 
and take care of her car. I had no way of knowing that an officer with whom I had worked for four years was capable of losing a 33-year-old woman and a 3,000-pound automobile. To this day, Officer Lewis does not know who she was, where she came from, or what happened to her. Strange. After President Kennedy was shot, he was rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, which remains the major public hospital in Dallas County today. Almost every victim of violence, from car wrecks to gunshot wounds, is brought to Parkland. Its emergency room is constantly staffed with doctors and interns, well-experienced in trauma situations. Parkland physicians and surgeons were the first medical professionals to evaluate Kennedy and perform any life-saving measures. This was also the first time the extent of Kennedy's wounds would be evaluated and documented. Huge problems began to accelerate after the president was pronounced dead at Parkland and Kennedy's body was flown back to Washington for an autopsy. Following the autopsy that evening at Bethesda Naval Medical Center in Maryland, serious discrepancies in the medical evidence arose. These discrepancies have provided a source of controversy that continues today. But the controversy didn't start there. It started on the way to Parkland. Secret Service driver William Greer testified to the Warren Commission that he did not know the way to Parkland, so he followed Sheriff Bill Decker and Chief Curry in the lead car. Greer's story is strengthened by the testimony of two other Secret Service agents, Forrest Sorrells and Winston Lawson. But when Chief Curry gave his testimony, he was strangely vague, saying only that the limousine went to the hospital under siren escort. This doesn't sound like an issue, but during the time of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, a film taken by Jack Daniel was released. Taken just as the motorcade exited from the west end of the triple underpass and entering Stemmons Freeway, the film clearly shows that both the presidential limousine and the Secret Service backup car passed Curry's lead car and began leading the race to the hospital. How could Agent Greer know how to find Parkland? He was based in D.C. If he familiarized himself with the route before the Dallas trip as a precaution because he was assigned to drive the presidential limo, this would be an understandable explanation and simple to state. But more important, why did he state in his commission testimony, I never passed Curry's car. I was led to the hospital by the police car who was preceding me. Once the presidential limo arrived at Parkland, Governor Connolly was placed in trauma room two and Secret Service agents Greer, Kellerman, and Lawson pulled the fatally wounded president away from Mrs. Kennedy, placed him on a stretcher, and pushed it into trauma room one. There, Kennedy was attended by no fewer than 12 of Parkland's doctors, including four surgeons, chief neurologist, an oral surgeon, and a heart specialist. I'll say that again. Kennedy was attended by no fewer than 12 of Parkland's doctors, including four surgeons, the chief neurologist, an oral surgeon, and a heart specialist. This is an incredible array of specialists. I emphasize that these physicians were experts. Something to take note of. Dr. Charles Carrico, a surgeon, was the first doctor to examine Kennedy. He noted the president was ashen in color, his breathing lacked coordination, there were no voluntary movements, and his eyes were open with pupils dilated, showing no reaction to light. However, a few chest sounds thought to be heartbeats were heard and he immediately began resuscitation efforts. Carrico inserted a cuffed endotracheal tube in a small puncture wound just below Kennedy's Adam's apple. 
other doctors began arriving and treating the president. Fluids and stimulants were injected and oxygen administered, but to no avail. President Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time by Dr. Kemp Clark, the Parkland's director of neurological surgery. Two major wounds were examined by Parkland doctors. The small wound in Kennedy's throat and a massive wound in the rear portion of his skull. Vice President Lyndon Johnson was kept secluded in another room while Kennedy was being worked on, when around 1.20, presidential aide Kenneth O'Donnell informed Johnson that Kennedy was dead. O'Donnell advised Johnson to return to Washington as soon as possible, but Mrs. Kennedy refused to leave without her husband's body, and so Johnson then refused to leave without Mrs. Kennedy. The decision was made to leave immediately with Kennedy's body and to return to Washington on Air Force One. This decision created one of the assassination's most lasting problems. With the president's body taken and the autopsy performed at Bethesda, two different sets of doctors, one civilian and one military, viewed the body at different times and their descriptions of the wounds would differ so incredibly that one has to consider that a cover-up took place. Dallas County Medical Examiner Dr. Earl Rose attempted to block the efforts of Secret Service agents trying to remove Kennedy's body from Parkland. A shouting match began, including profanities, and by some accounts, weapons were drawn, and so, Rose was forced to step aside. In 2003, Rose told the Associated Press he and his staff should have conducted the examination as required by law. We had the routine in place to do it, and it was important for the chain of evidence to remain intact. That didn't happen when the body was taken to Bethesda, he explained. Parkland also had the more experienced medical staff. As you will hear in a bit, the medical staff conducting the autopsy at Bethesda were just not qualified for such an important autopsy. One would think that for an assassinated president, only the A team would do. But the Bethesda pathologists weren't even the B or C team. They were more like the water boys. I know this sounds harsh, but after going through all the shenanigans alluded to this autopsy, I can't help but be blunt. Now, Coffin had been ordered from the O'Neill funeral home, and once it arrived, Kennedy's body was sped away from Parkland Hospital. Ambulance driver Aubrey Reich, you will remember him as the ambulance driver who picked up the man who had a seizure in front of the depository building shortly before Kennedy's assassination, claimed that even though his ambulance was on standby at Parkland, his boss, Vernon O'Neill, arrived with an expensive bronze casket into which Kennedy's body was placed. After Kennedy's body left Parkland, and while Dallas doctors worked on Governor Connolly in his second-floor operating room, another incident occurred in the hospital that was to have long-reaching effects on the official theory of the assassination. A hospital worker discovered a bullet in the hallway. It was this bullet, Commission Exhibit 399, that became the foundation of the single-bullet theory of the assassination. It has also been called the magic bullet. I'll explain the strange event in a later episode that covers evidence. After Kennedy's body was returned to Air Force One at Love Field, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States by Federal Judge Sarah T. Hughes. On the plane flight back to Washington, the original destination for Kennedy's body was Walter Reed Army Hospital, not Bethesda Naval Medical Center. General Chester Clifton, senior military aide, radioed, this is General Clifton. We do not want a helicopter to go to Bethesda Medical Center. We do want an ambulance and a ground return from Andrews to Walter Reed. 
and we want the regular post-mortem that has to be done by law, under guard, performed at Walter Reed. Is that clear? So, why the sudden change to Bethesda? Kennedy's personal physician, Dr. George Berkeley, wrote in his report of that day, During the course of the flight, it was Mrs. Kennedy who wanted her husband's body taken to Bethesda. Berkeley explained to her that the body needed to be taken to a hospital for an autopsy, and he felt, for security reasons, it should be a military hospital. Kennedy, being a formal naval officer, it is no surprise that his wife would want his body taken to a naval hospital. It certainly appears that Bethesda was not prepared for this most important autopsy. As I expressed, the three military physicians who performed Kennedy's autopsy were clinical pathologists with little experience in gunshot wounds. Their lack of training and experience in forensic pathology has been pointed out by many commentators. Navy Commander James Humes, the lead pathologist, told the commission that he had once completed a course in forensic pathology at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, but one course does not make one an expert. By trade, I'm a scientist with degrees in mathematics and physics. I once took a graduate course on graph theory, but certainly no one would call me an expert in that mathematical subfield. Humes was the director of laboratories at the Naval Medical School at Bethesda, not a practicing forensic pathologist. The second Navy doctor on the autopsy team was Commander J. Thornton Boswell. He was board certified in clinical and pathological anatomy, not forensic pathology. And when questioned by the Warren Commission attorney, he was never asked how many previous autopsies he performed or even if he had ever conducted one. You attorneys out there know that you don't ask questions you already know the answer to unless it helps your case. I'll let you, the audience, infer as to why Boswell wasn't asked those questions. Of the three autopsy doctors, only Lieutenant Colonel Pierre Fink of the U.S. Army was board certified in forensic pathology. But the last time he had conducted an autopsy had been in 1958, meaning it had been at least five years since he performed an autopsy in a gunshot death case. As the only doctor with any forensic experience, Fink should have been the lead pathologist during the autopsy. But he would state later that he was hampered in his autopsy procedures by officials in the room. At the Clay Shaw trial, New Orleans assistant attorney Alvin Oser pressed Fink on why, as an autopsy pathologist, he had not tracked the bullet wound through Kennedy's body to determine its exact path. After dodging the question for a time, Dr. Fink finally was ordered by the court to answer Oser's question. Dr. Fink stated, As I recall, I was told not to, but I don't remember by whom. Could it have been one of the admirals or one of the generals in the room, asked Oser. Fink replied, I don't recall. The military autopsy doctors apparently were surrounded by both military and civilian superiors who conducted much of the autopsy. Some of this direction was contrary to normal autopsy procedures. But for all the puzzles and the directions of superiors, Humes had come to some definite conclusions by the end of the autopsy. One bullet entered the rear of Kennedy's head and exited the top of his skull. Another bullet entered the president's back and apparently worked its way out during cardiac massage at Parkland. Hume studied the head wound and found about 40 pieces of bullet metal. This would indicate that a bullet fragmented while passing through the skull area. Humes's conclusion was that a high-velocity rifle bullet had entered the rear of the skull, fragmented, and then exited through the top of the skull, attributing the death to this wound. On the autopsy face sheet diagram marked by Dr. Humes, 
a wound is depicted in Kennedy's back between the shoulder blades. Kennedy's death certificate states, A second wound occurred in the posterior back at about the level of the third thoracic vertebrae. To help you visualize this location, it's about six inches below the neckline. This description on the wound's location was supported by the testimony of Secret Service agents and bullet holes in Kennedy's clothing. But this was a real problem for the Warren Commission. If the president's wound was between the shoulder blades, this was lower than the position of the neck wound, making for an upward trajectory, completely inconsistent with shots fired, from 60 feet above and behind the president. Researchers discovered that the original diagram, depicting a wound in the low back, had been marked verified by Kennedy's personal physician, Dr. George Berkeley. This verification of the autopsy sheet had been eliminated in copies of the document presented by the Warren Commission to the public. In 1982, Berkeley reportedly told author Henry Hurt that he believed Kennedy's death was the result of conspiracy. However, Berkeley declined to elaborate further. Commander J. Thornton Boswell, Hume's assistant, told author Josiah Thompson that all three doctors probed the back wound with their fingers but could not penetrate past an inch or so. According to Boswell, a thin metal probe also was used but no bullet track could be located. But if the back wound caused problems, it was nothing compared to the problems that arose after Humes learned that the autopsy doctors had completely missed one of the president's wounds, the throat wound. At this point, I'm just baffled. To maintain any kind of continuity of care, or to at least establish the medical history from the time of the assassination to Parkland Hospital, and finally Bethesda, a reasonable person would assume there would be some kind of form of communication, or at the very least, documents. Why the autopsy pathologist didn't or wouldn't talk to anyone from Parkland, or ask for clinical notes, is beyond me. Dr. Perry at Parkland described the throat wound as a small hole, about 3-5 to millimeters in diameter, that had the appearance of an entrance wound. The Parkland doctors were unanimous about the nature of the throat wound. It was an entrance wound, and all the doctors who expressed an opinion during the days following the assassination described it as such. To facilitate the tracheotomy, Perry said he made a surgical incision laterally across this hole, but made sure not to obliterate the bullet wound. But by the time the autopsy doctors examined Kennedy's throat, this wound had elongated to almost three inches. The bullet wound, subsequently, went unnoticed. Upon learning of the throat wound the day after the autopsy, Humes was forced to revise his autopsy report. The autopsy doctors determined that the back wound was 4 to 7 millimeters in diameter, and the Dallas doctors said the throat wound was 3 to 5 millimeters in diameter. Since the back wound was larger, this normally would suggest that the neck wound was one of entrance and the back wound one of exit assuming both holes represented the path of a single bullet. However, Hume saw it another way. Testifying to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Hume said upon learning of the throat wound, lights went on, and we said, ah, we have some place for our missile to have gone. After revising his autopsy report, Humes walked to his fireplace and burned autopsy material, alternatively described as original notes, a first draft, or other written notes. This highly questionable activity preceded his final autopsy report, which stated definitively, one missile entered the back of the president and exited in the front of the neck. Furthermore, all the Parkland doctors said Kennedy had a large blasted hole in the right rear portion of his head. 
not at all like the gaping wound in the right top portion of his skull as reported in the autopsy. These differences in the descriptions of the throat and head wounds suggest only three explanations. One, the Dallas medical personnel lied about what they saw. Two, the autopsy directors lied about what they saw. Three, no one lied, thus indicating the wounds were altered between the time they were seen in Dallas and the autopsy. There is some support to suggest that none of the doctors lied. There's an FBI report by Siebert O'Neill of the Bethesda autopsy which states, The president's body was removed from the casket and placed on the autopsy table, at which time the complete body was wrapped in a sheet and the head area contained an additional wrapping, which was saturated with blood. It was also apparent that a tracheotomy had been performed, as well as surgery of the head area, namely, the top of the skull. Um, what? No surgery of any type was conducted on top of the skull by any Parkland doctor. So if this FBI report is accurate, what the hell happened? David Lifton, a former NASA computer engineer who researched the assassination for more than 15 years, would be the first person to interview both medical personnel in Dallas and at Bethesda. In his book, Best Evidence, Lifton reported that there were discrepancies not only in the descriptions of Kennedy's wounds, but also in reports of how the body was transported. It has been documented that Kennedy's body was wrapped in a sheet in Dallas and, as stated previously, placed in an expensive bronze casket for shipment to Washington. The problem with this is that Lipton found Bethesda medical technicians who said they removed Kennedy's body from a black zippered body bag that was inside a cheap gray military-style shipping casket, similar to those used to transport bodies back from Vietnam. This was confirmed by others, including Captain John Stover, Bethesda's commanding officer. Lifton also interviewed Bethesda X-ray technician Gerald Custer, and what he said is pretty shocking. Custer said he had already made X-ray photographs of Kennedy's body, had gone to the upper floor to process them, and was returning to the morgue area of the hospital when he encountered a blood-stained Jacqueline Kennedy, surrounded by news reporters and Secret Service agents entering Bethesda. Can you guess what he saw outside? The bronze casket from Dallas, the one that supposedly contained the president's body. In 1992, the American Medical Association would end up publishing articles about Kennedy that presented photos and x-rays showing a hole on the right side of Kennedy's face, indicating that that portion was destroyed. But Custer disputed the article. He stated, There was no damage to his face and no part of his skull was missing on the forward part of his head. He concluded, These are fake x-rays. Custer wasn't the only one to dissent. Floyd Reeb, who took autopsy photos claimed after pointing to dozens of the presented autopsy photographs, these films are doctored one way or another. They are phony and not the photographs we took. Disappointingly, this bombshell testimony from the technicians who actually took JFK's x-rays and photographs received little attention from the media. The author Lipton concluded that the assassination was the result of a plot involving the executive branch of government. His hypothesis was this. Since it is unbelievable that the doctors of both Parkland and Bethesda lied about their observations, the alternative belief was that Kennedy's body was altered. Lifton discovered a brief time period during the swearing-in ceremonies for Lyndon Johnson aboard Air Force One. When everyone gathered, this left Kennedy's body unattended. It was during this time that he believed JFK's body was taken from the bronze Dallas casket placed in a military body bag, and stowed elsewhere on the plane. 
Once at Andrews Air Force Base, Kennedy's body was taken off the right side of the Air Force One and placed in a helicopter, which immediately took off while the news media and officials concentrated on Mrs. Kennedy and the Dallas casket, which were unloaded from the left side of the plane. Either at Walter Reed or Bethesda, someone altered the president's wounds to conform to the shots from behind thesis, and then the body was wrapped in a sheet and placed on the Bethesda autopsy table, ready for Dr. Humes and the others. To offer some support that Kennedy's body was tampered with, here are some of the statements made from the first persons to observe Kennedy's head wound. Secret Service agent Clint Hill told the Warren Commission the right rear portion of his head was missing. Dr. Charles Carrico noted a large hole in the posterior skull of the occipital region. There was an absence of the calvarium or skull in this area. Of note, the occipital is the large bone on the back of a human skull. Dr. Malcolm Perry I noted a large avulsive wound of the right parietal occipital area in which both scalp and portions of skull were absent. Dr. William Kemp Clark I then examined the wound in the back of the president's head. This was a large, gaping wound in the right posterior part with cerebral and cerebellar tissue being damaged and exposed. Dr. Robert McClelland I noted that the right posterior portion of the skull had been extremely blasted. The Parkland doctors would eventually go silent about their observations except for Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who retired as chairman of the Department of Surgery at Fort Worth Peter Smith Hospital and a director of the Tarrant County Hospital District. In 1992, he was vilified by the Journal of the American Medical Association after he publicly stated that Kennedy was shot from the front and that the Dallas doctors had engaged in a conspiracy of silence concerning his wounds. The journal even suggested that Crenshaw was never in Parkland's emergency room. Crenshaw stated, My observations contradicted the official version of the assassination, as reported in the Warren Commission. I stated that President Kennedy was shot at least once, and I believe twice, from the front, and Oswald could not have been a lone gunman. I had anticipated criticism from some, but I never expected the vicious attack from my medical colleagues. The journal was forced to retract and agreed to a financial settlement after it was pointed out that five doctors and nurses had mentioned Crenshaw's presence in their Warren Commission testimony. Robert Grodin, the photographic consultant to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, had a simple explanation for the mystery surrounding the autopsy photographs. After careful study, he agreed with photographer Floyd Reeb that the autopsy photos now available to the public are forgeries. After discovering evidence of retouching, Grodin wrote, The vital autopsy photos of the back of the president's head were altered immediately after the autopsy in order to cover up the fact that the president received two bullets in the head, one from the rear and one from the front, and this second shot blew out the back of his head, as Jackie Kennedy testified to the Warren Commission. Dr. Cecil Weck, an experienced coroner and former president of the American Academy of Forensic Medicine, was blunt when he summed up the autopsy. He stated, Kennedy's autopsy was extremely superficial and sloppy, inept, incomplete, incompetent in many respects, not only on the part of the pathologists who did this horribly inadequate medical legal autopsy, but on part of many other people. This is the kind of examination that would not be tolerated in a routine murder case by a good crew of homicide detectives in most major cities of America. As Grodin later wrote, the key to understanding who killed Kennedy lies with the autopsy photographs. These photographs may tell us more about the assassination 
than all of the official investigations. Perhaps the most important question in the investigation was never asked. Why were the autopsy photographs and x-rays never officially shown to the numerous doctors and nurses in Dallas who treated President Kennedy? Had this question been pursued, the true nature of the conspiracy would then have been exposed because the crucial pictures allegedly of the back of the president's head are forged. That forgery is one of the keys to the conspiracy. Who would have had that kind of access to the evidence in order to alter it? Who had the capability to alter it? X-rays and other autopsy materials, such as photographs, tissue samples, and blood smears, including Kennedy's brain, which was removed and preserved, that could provide definitive proof of the location of the wounds, are missing from the National Archives. You heard that right. They're missing. Next time on Conspiracy, the world knows Lee Harvey Oswald as the man who murdered the president. We take a look at his past and his movements and try to make sense of it all. What will you believe? This is an Aurora Boris Inc. production. 